Hello and welcome to Writing on the Walls. I'm your host, Rob Lavati. I'm very excited today to be joined by the powerful clinician, facilitator, and author, Dr. Jack Jordan. Dr. Jordan has had a career that has spanned over 40 years working with individuals on bereavement and grief, and has specifically focused on helping survivors of suicide loss. Uh, he also was a pioneer in the training programs that were developed to help teach clinicians to work with clients who are either suicidal or have survived a suicide loss. In addition to his clinical work, uh, his individual clinical work, Dr. Jordan has served as a consultant for organizations such as uh, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and Samaritans. Uh, we get into quite a bit on this episode, including how grieving a suicide loss differs from other losses, how to find connection after a suicide loss, seeking therapy to help with bereavement and grief. We talk about how modern psychiatry approaches psychological pain. And finally, we actually discuss some of the debate around physician-assisted suicide. One thing I wanted to throw out there as a new podcast, it would be incredibly helpful if you could leave us a review or rating on your platform of choice. If you like what you're hearing, or even if you don't, please consider reviewing or rating the show. Um, I found this to be an incredibly helpful and powerful episode, and I hope you do as well. Let's get into it. I've recently gone through the process of switching therapists, so I know how hard it can be to find someone who's a good fit. It feels like most of the time I've either gotten put on a wait list or have gotten no response at all. With our sponsor, BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 25,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help with a wide range of issues. Once you get matched with a therapist through BetterHelp, you can talk to them however you feel comfortable via text chat, phone, or video call. To get started, visit betterhelp.com slash W-O-T-W for writing on the walls. That's betterhelp.com backslash W-O-T-W to get 10% off your first month of therapy. Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode today. Hey, Dr. Jordan, thanks for joining me today. Hi, Rob. How are you? I'm, I'm doing well. Uh, excited to be speaking with you today. There are a lot of things I'd like to touch on in terms of your 40 plus years of clinical experience. Um, one of the things I would definitely like to focus on is your book, uh, Surviving or After Suicide Loss, rather, um, something that has been immensely helpful to me in the loss of my father. And, and I think it would be helpful for those folks listening as well. Um, but before we formally jump in, there's a question I'd like to ask. I'm just curious how specifically suicide loss has impacted your life. Okay. Well, first of all, thanks for inviting me to do this, Rob. Um, that's a, a big question. And let me try and see if I can give you a, a concise but still uh, comprehensive answer. Um, I People want to know, am I a suicide loss survivor myself when I present to survivors or even in professional settings? And what I the answer I give people is that I see myself as a distant 
second suicide loss survivor, mm. by which I mean um, I had, in a sense, I've had two suicide losses personally in my life. One was I had a great uncle die in 1987 of suicide. And the other was uh, I was seeing a couple in couples therapy. I can talk better about why I got into grief and bereavement as a, as a focus to become a grief therapist. Uh, Please, yeah. Uh, well, I at one point in my life, I was going to be a clergy person. Mm. And I, I see what I do as, as as much like a ministry as it is doing tech, technical therapy with with people or being a, a medical person administering a treatment to someone who has a disease or a disorder. Mm. Um, and so that's, this has been a chance for me to be a minister without technically, without having to go to seminary or mm. you know, uh, yeah. become a formally a, a minister. Um, I somehow early on, I don't remember exactly how I got involved with an organization called the American Fund Foundation for Suicide Prevention, which is a, probably the leading organization in the United States that tries to raise funds. It originally began as a, as a group of an organization of mainly of psychiatrists who were interested in, in helping to prevent suicide. Mm. Um, and, and they've been very successful as fundraisers. They also, more than any other organization on a national level that I'm aware of, um, have developed services for survivors, post-vention services is the term that we use. And and I got involved with them uh, early and started working with them. I helped them design a whole training program to teach uh, lay people. I mean, therapists come to the training also, but to teach lay people how to facilitate bereavement support groups for suicide loss survivors. Mm -hmm. And I... These days, I have a day-long uh, training that I do for mental health professionals, although survivors sometimes call, come to it also, um, called, called the Suicide Bereavement Clinician Training Program. And AFSP has a network of chapters all over the country. I think they've got about 70 or 80 got chapters in every state in the, in the United States, and they've got uh, some states have more than one chapter. And I mostly I've been delivering that training for clinicians through AFSP, although sometimes I just did one, for example, in Tennessee, but I'm next week I'm going to be doing it for a local organization in the Boston area that's not connected to AFSP. So I do it sometimes other um, settings. And sort of once I got into it, I, I, I found that I was good at it. I found like the subject fascinates me. Mm. Um, suicide is something that, most people don't want to think about. They don't think about for themselves. Um, and it scares people in general. It scares clinicians to work with somebody who is suicidal. And I understand that. Um, but I've always been interested in issues about life and death and after after death, what happens, et cetera. So it's part of my philosophical ministerial bent, I guess, to to be interested in suicide. And once I got in it and started learning about it, writing about it, working with survivors, um, I I just felt drawn to it. There are, there are extra burdens that people who lose someone to suicide carry besides people who are just grieving. It's hard mm. enough to be grieving a loss in our culture because yeah. I'm, I'm overgeneralizing here, obviously, but 
most Americans don't want anything to do with death and dying and, and don't know what to do when they're around that or someone close to them has, has died or they are grieving a loss. Um, but that's doubly true after suicide because of the stigma associated with it primarily and yeah. because of the general public's ignorance about what contributes to suicide and who's, whose fault it is or who's responsible for it. So it was fascinating and it was it just was a compelling thing that drew drew me in more because of working with survivors than because of personal losses to suicide in my own life. Yeah, that's 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 a very great answer. And I appreciate you sharing that with me. Um, and it's taken me in a few different directions that I'd like to go. Um, but something you mentioned is how there is some hesitation from clinicians um, in terms of working with someone who may be dealing with their own suicidal ideation yes. or grieving a suicide loss. Yes. Um, that's that's something I've heard before. And I'm, I'm yep. curious about your take on that. Something I would uh maybe envision is there's this fear around losing that person or not being good enough to help them what they're going through. Um, from your perspective, what else is it that may make a provider hesitant about working with someone who's suicidal? Uh, I, well, I can speak for myself and I'm, I think I'm fairly, fairly much like other human beings. So I assume it's fairly <laughs> similar for other people, I'm not too, too weird, too, too far off. the. <laughs> I think it's the sense of responsibility. You know, right. I, I couldn't be a brain surgeon either or a heart surgeon because I would have too many of my patients die and that would just be normal in the course of doing the the work. But mental health clinicians are not trained to for or drawn to doing clinical work by and large, are not prepared for having one of their patients die. Mm. as a result of the problems that they have in their life. And whether you would call, want to call it the die of depression or die of whatever the, it, is, it is that contributes to that particular suicide, I think the responsibility feels too big and great. And I, I had trouble and have trouble. Uh, I'm retired now, but um, sitting with people, I, it has to be done. And mm -hmm. our graduate programs need to do a much, much better job of training people, exposing them to it, as well as normalizing that you, if you're going to work with suicidal patients, you're going to lose some of them in mm -hmm. the same way that a heart doctor is going to lose some of their patients to heart disease or, or cancer, you know, an oncologist or whatever. Yeah. We don't, we don't get that exposure and that support for learning how to deal with it or cope with it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, it, it does seem like a lot of pressure to have to be that uh, essentially final frontier for someone who's really having a exactly. hard time. Right. And then also putting yourself in the position where um, you may have to be a survivor of losing someone that you care exactly. about and that you're working with. Yeah. And, um, and some clinicians can very clinicians can very much become lost survivors when they lose a patient, particularly somebody who they've known well and worked with a long time. That yeah. can be I had a patient who I've, worked a long time with, and I use clips of our work in, in my training of mental health professionals. She's a suicide loss survivor, lost her son, um, who made a suicide attempt at one point. And mm. it was difficult for me to feel like, and I, I I knew she was having a hard time. I didn't know she was that, that far close to uh, making a suicide attempt, and it was disturbing to me. It was upsetting to me. Um, you know, I didn't stop seeing her and I, we're still connected. In fact, we're working together on some things now, but um, 
it's a big burden of responsibility that's difficult for clinicians like any human being to carry. Yeah. Um, I know from experience in my own life, and I'm wondering if you had this experience there in a clinical setting, is when someone makes a suicide attempt, I'll speak from my own experience, I don't want to generalize, um, it made me question my relationship with that person. Exactly. Is this is this actually important to them? Am I meaningful exactly. to them? How Which, could they do that? How could they have done right, this? Right. Exactly. Which is a pretty narrow, uh, maybe self-absorbed lens for me to look at it through, but... No, but it's extremely common in suicide loss survivors. One of the issues they struggle with is, um, it, it's in an article that I, I wrote that I, I uh, sent to you. Um, um, it's what I call the perceived intentionality of suicide, the perceived intentionality of suicide. Um, most causes of death, people didn't choose. They don't choose to get cancer and die by cancer. They don't choose to you know, be in a car crash, et cetera. I mean, a car crash can sometimes be a suicide attempt, but absolutely, yep. I'm not talking about that. But, yep. and when people choose death, it has all kinds of, people read all kinds of messages into that behavior. Like that's an interpersonal statement. So if your spouse chooses to kill themselves, it makes you say, well, what was wrong with me? That Why wasn't I enough to keep them alive? Why, mm-hmm. why wasn't our love enough, you know? And it feels very personal. And that's very difficult for survivors. If you lose someone who you're close to and who you have some bond with and affection with and feel responsible for, you feel mm. like you failed basically, you know, in some yeah. way. Yeah. That, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on how you depersonalize something like that, where if a loved one does commit suicide, is it possible to separate your feelings around that and personalization of it? Uh, probably not. Uh, the, the, the way I think about it and what helps me is to, to recognize, to have, try to hold to a philosophy that says that so there is some degree of choice in most suicides. Is it a choice made out of people's free will Mm. No, you could you could legitimately say if someone wasn't in so much psychological pain, which we know underlies most suicides, they probably wouldn't kill themselves. You know, uh, if yeah. the, someone once said to me, "I wasn't trying to kill myself; I was trying to kill the pain." Mm-hmm. When they made this a uh, suicide attempt, and that's it's always stuck with me is that that that's right. That's there in most suicides, and so we can um, do all we can to try to reduce the pain that someone may be in. But we also have to accept that we're not going to be able to always reduce enough pain to prevent suicide. And so it's a, it's a matter of making coming to terms with your own limitations. And I don't want to say fallibilities or failures because it's not a failure. You know, I think most heart surgeons learn that I can't take responsibility that I failed if one of my patients dies of their heart disease, you know, mm. um, I did my best to try to help them. And you have to sort of cultivate that mindset about, about um, compassion for the pain that people are in and also accepting that suicide is a, is a pathway by which some people escape the pain they're in. And it's not my job in the universe to say, well, you shouldn't do that. You absolutely can't do that. It's my job to try to do everything I can to help them not be in so much pain. But if that isn't enough or doesn't work, 
then I have to accept that I, I'm, as a psychiatrist once said to me, we have to, we have to accept that we're not God. Yeah. That we we can't just save everybody, no matter how hard we try or how much we want to. It's a very hard lesson for clinicians to learn, because clinicians by and large come into the field because they want to help people. Yeah. And when someone dies, it feels like I didn't help them. Yeah, I, I think it's a hard lesson for all of us to learn. Um, yes. I think there's this idea that if we focus enough time, resources, energy, we can prevent all suicides from happening. Exactly. And I think you hit on uh, the the fact of the matter, which is that might not be possible. Um, and I think there are these two legs kind of working simultaneously, one of which is suicide prevention and awareness. Um, and you mentioned AFSP, and I think they do such a fantastic job of raising funds and uh, teaching workshops and bringing events to schools, raising awareness, help basically. raise awareness. And then this other leg is response. Um, and I think that seems to be the under-focused area right now. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious what what you've seen in terms of that space. There may be maybe there's a more appropriate name for it, but in terms of suicide response, which AFSP does do some of. I'm curious if you've seen any other organizations that focus their efforts there. Well, you know, I, th I think I think uh, when it's a very interesting question you raise. I think, and I've thought a lot about this. The the question, um, uh, the the issue I have with organizations like AFSP is that they and and others who are dedicated to the suicide prevention work uh, will often say things like suicide is a preventable death. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that says, well, if I have someone close to me die by suicide, why didn't I prevent it? Or why didn't somebody else prevent it? Why didn't their therapist prevent it? If it's preventable, why did it happen? Mm. But that's like saying that, you know, all cancer is preventable or all heart disease is preventable. And it just isn't. Um, and we have to accept the the element of choice that may be there in some in some degree of choices there in most suicides. But it's not right to say that all suicide is just a choice because yeah. people are that choice is driven by the the pain and the suffering that the person has in their life. And I've I've tried to learn to respect people's autonomy about what they're going to do about the pain they have in their life while also doing whatever I can do to help reduce it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the name is escaping me right now, but there there was a gentleman from Florida State University that did a study years back on individuals who have survived a suicide attempt mm -hmm. to understand the environmental factors um, or exactly what was in play at that moment they made the decision to attempt yes. suicide. Yes, yes. And across the board, there were three factors that seemed common for almost everybody. And those factors were a feeling of isolation or loneliness. Yes. yes. Um, a period of an hour or greater of psychological and or emotional distress. Turmoil, yeah. And the third, um, a loss of the fear of death. Yep. And when those three things came together, yep. um, that seemed to be the perfect storm for someone making a decision exactly. to attempt suicide. Exactly. No, um, I, I think that's very right. Yeah. And after um, we're done with the episode here, I'll, I'll find the study and I'll put that in the show notes for anybody who wants to take a look sure. at that. Something you you touched on before that I'd like to pull on a little bit. You You talked about the nuances between surviving loss of any type and surviving the loss of a suicide um, yeah. specifically for a loved one. I'm curious what, what you view the differences uh, between the two as. 
Well, that that's another big uh, question. I sorry, I meant to ask you this before we we started the sure the recording. Did did you get the article that I sent? Lessons lost uh, this morning. I did get it. I haven't had a chance to open it okay, up that's, yet. Okay, that's fine. But are you? do you have a place you can post that? Do you have a yes. website for the podcast? Yep, and I can share okay. that uh, along right. with the episode so folks can access that. Great, great. And also the, the reading list that I sent. Um, in that article, I try to talk some about uh, the ways in which it's different. And I've, I've written some other things that are that are basically the title of the article will be something like, how is grief after suicide different or something to that effect? So mm -hmm. if people get the reading list, they may find something that I've written that can be helpful. Um, I think the core element is, uh, again, is this idea of perceived intentionality. There really is no other death in which people actively decide, I'm, I'm out of here. Mm -hmm. I want to end my life and stop this, this pain that I'm in. And the way to do it is to end my life. Um, and so suicide has intentionality, or even if it doesn't, uh, even if, some, if someone was psychotic and out of their mind, people around the survivor, uh, I'm sorry, around the person who died, who took their life, perceive that they made a choice. And that choice has has implications for what what my relationship was with them yep. or what are the, what are they trying to communicate to me once in a while a suicide can be motivated by a wish to get revenge at someone else but that's very rare uh that's a sort of common theme so i guess in hollywood or movies or something mm -hmm. the, the revenge suicide of, of punishing someone else but uh most suicide is an attempt to as someone said to me i want to i was trying to kill the pain not to kill myself i really wanted to stop my pain and this is the only way i could see to do it and so that perceived intentionality differentiates it from most other causes of death the second thing that's important is the stigma associated with it now there are other stigmatized deaths in america if you die of, of drug abuse yep most people look frown on that and look down on it etc um sometimes if you die in homicide you know, if well, what, what were you doing in that bar, you know, drinking, you know, you're in the wrong place, you shouldn't have been there, et cetera. So people find ways to blame the victim yeah. oftentimes. But but that's the stigma associated with suicide. Almost every culture in the world, with, with a couple of exceptions, um, condemns suicide. And every certainly every world, major world religion if not, if not condemning it, they disapprove of suicide, okay, and try to discourage it. And so um, there's a whole lot of a mountain of stigma that people face. That's changing slowly in America, I think, as people develop a different understanding of what leads to suicide. It used to be seen as just sinful behavior. Yeah. Um, it used to be seen as, as bad, immoral behavior and a violation of God's will, in fact. Mm -hmm. If you fi file this in your go figure box, you know what the yeah. punishment was in, in Puritan New England for attempted suicide? What's up? Hanging. You could be put to death for trying to kill yourself. Go figure. You know, we're going to yeah. punish you for trying to kill yourself by killing you. Um, mm. Think about that for a minute. So it's it's a long history of punishment and avoidance and condemnation of suicidal behavior. That's changing slowly probably in the developed world as as um 
people come to understand better what are what are the things that lead people to suicide and that lead people to try to end their their life and that's good that's a softening of the judgmentalness of society about suicidal behavior so those two things make a difference what else makes it different um usually although i under i underline the word usually rather than always suicide people are blindsided by suicide Mm. They didn't, even if they knew the person was depressed or unhappy, they did not see the suicide coming. Now, there's sometimes when that's not true. People may have been suffering from psychiatric disorder for a long time. They may have made previous attempts. The family may have been on suicide watch for quite a while. Um, and they're not surprised or shocked by the suicide. In fact, one of the difficult emotions they may feel is relief that the ordeal for them and for the person who's suffering the depression or whatever it is is not suffering anymore but then they immediately people immediately feel guilty about feeling relief about yeah. i shouldn't feel that way about my father dying you know or yeah that can differentiate it also from other most people don't feel relief when someone else dies unless they were abusive or, or hurtful yeah that, that was a great answer and, and you talked a little bit about um, some of the uniqueness with suicide uh, and you compared it to homicide where there may be some some blaming of the victim. And I think what kind of creates this vortex around suicide is the victim is also the actor. Exactly. Um, the victim and, is also the perpetrator. Exactly. Just suicide that, literally means self-murder yep. in the Latin roots of it. And so people have some of the same reactions they do to homicide, which is, this is wrong. This person should be, what they did was wrong and evil and, and selfish um, even. And so people, people can be con condemned for the anger that people feel towards homicide, but the, the suicide person that died by suicide gets that anger directed at them rather than in a, in a regular homicide. I don't mean regular homicide, but in a homicide, yeah. The perpetrator of the homicide is different than the victim of the homicide. And the victim gets sympathy and the perpetrator gets, you know, punished and condemned and just yeah. hated. Yeah, that's something we talked about on a previous episode with with Dr. David Treadway is while you're grieving a suicide, you're not just grieving the loss of your loved one or the ending of that relationship. You're you're grieving that person being murdered. So yes. that's something I felt after losing my dad is like, man, my my, my dad killed my dad. That is weird when you say it in those words. It is yes, really exactly. strange. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I, I was in a, a 12 step meeting last night and an individual shared something that really stuck with me. Um, they were talking about their struggles with substance abuse and really being stuck in the cycle of getting sober and relapsing and understanding how substance use and alcoholism are two huge risk factors in someone's suicidality. Um, what they shared in this meeting was that while they're in this struggle, if there was a big red button they could have pressed that would have ended their lives, they would have pressed it in a heartbeat. Um, and they said, luckily, it's it's not that easy. Yes, um, that's right. And, and what I took away from that is I think one of the core things that makes us human beings is this idea of self-preservation, yes. um, protecting myself, keeping myself alive. Exactly. Um, so for someone to be in a headspace where they make the decision to do the exact opposite of that, um, there has to be something going on there that is not soundness of mind. Um, and I'm curious what, 
what you view as those factors that can put someone that in that headspace where not only am I abandoning the idea of preserving self, but I am completely taking that away. I want to be dead. Yeah. I want exactly. Yeah. No, I, I understand the question. Um, I've, I mostly think about it as, as I alluded to earlier is tremendous pain. So when I try to help survivors understand it, I try to make an analogy that people can relate to. Um, I don't know. Have you ever, I asked people, have you ever had just unremitting, terrible, terrible pain? Mm-hmm. Um, now I, you know, the, I guess the worst pain I've had in my life is I had, I've had kidney stones a couple of times in my life, which are very painful, you know? Yeah. Um, I think about burn victims, you know, when you think about the pain that a burn victim suffers and there's very little you can do to help a burn victim because you can't just put, you know, ointment on it or something like that. Cause that's agonizing. In yeah. the internet of itself, about all you can do is give them large doses of uh, opioids, of morphine or something like that, that helps mm-hmm. uh, deal with the pain. Um, can you imagine being in that experience, that situation yourself, and it would feel like uh, pain captures our attention? Pain is meant to to say, "Hey, something's wrong." You know, pay attention to this. So if you stub your toe and you're bleeding in that, that pain tells your brain, better look at your toe. You know, there's something the matter, that pain that's coming from your toe. Mm. Well, when you have pain all over your body physically, or if you have pain all over your psyche, mm-hmm. all over your mind, and it's constant and it's unremitting, but it, what it does is it's terribly debilitating and it makes people feel like they develop hopelessness. A key mm-hmm. element over and over and over, studies find that hopelessness is a key, uh, almost always necessary uh, ingredient in suicide happening is that people have felt like there's nothing else that's going to work here. I got to hit that red button. You know? Yeah. This pain and, is going to last forever, essentially. Yeah, and, and that may not be a distortion. It may not be true. But at the moment, it feels like I can't stand this going on forever. I have to do something to end it. And so in that sense, suicide is a rational response to what appears to be or feels like it will be unremitting pain. Mm. And the first job of working with someone who's suicidal is to figure out what can you and I do to help make the pain a little bit less. And the antidote to psychic pain is is basically is hope. Mm. People can endure a lot if they know it isn't going to be forever. And the hope that they can feel better and whatever it is, if they're grieving, if they feel whatever it is I've lost, I can either regain or I can learn to live in a world without them. And we may talk about this later this morning is that if people can find a different way of feeling connected to the person who died, Mm. um, other than having them physically there in your room, you know, with you alive, all of those can be an antidote to that severe pain. Um, but when there's, it appears that there's no antidote to the pain, suicide then feels like an understandable um, um, choice. I mean, it's interesting. A lot of people, most people disapprove of suicide, but a, a fair number of Americans, I don't know if it's the majority yet or not, approve of physician-assisted suicide for people who are dying of cancer, for example, mm-hmm. and they're in excruciating pain. Yeah, I could see why why being allowed to end your life is a, is an okay thing, and that's the analogy I think you need to think about when you're trying to understand pain that's due to psychic psychological pain. Which, by the way, I, I'm no neurobiologist, but I think there's some evidence that that 
psychological pain uh, triggers the same parts of the brain that that physical pain does. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so it, we're really talking about pain as the the cause of suicide. Ed, Edward Snyderman, you probably know is recognizes his name. He's the founder yeah. of at least of American suicidology, coined a term called psychic, which is a very mm-hmm. useful concept. Which is that people who die by suicide are suffering from psychic, which is another way of saying psychological pain. Yeah, it's it's really helpful to look at it in that context. I really like the way you put it of pain all over the body versus pain all over the psyche. What I'm what I'm curious is what are some mechanisms for instilling hope um, in someone who is is feeling that? Well, if you're looking for guaranteed mechanisms, let me know when you find out because I, yeah. <laughs> I'd like to have that. I don't think yeah. there are. I don't think there are simple formulas that you can take that that uh, do that. Unfortunately, I believe that part of what modern psychiatry does is looks first to uh, chemicals, to medication as a way of relieving that pain. And there's a lot of good evidence, controlled evidence that, that antidepressants, for example, um, are effective at reducing symptoms of depression. The problem is there's not a lot of this, a little bit, but there's not a lot of evidence that, for example, antidepressants are effective at reducing psychological pain mm-hmm. uh, or, or uh, uh, depression. And there's not, a, I didn't say that quite right. There's not a lot of evidence that antidepressants uh, prevent suicide. Mm-hmm. And you would think it would. Well, if they, if they reduce the pain of depression, wouldn't that help? It may help. There's some a little bit of evidence that it does for elderly people who are depressed, uh, putting them on antidepressants. But medication is the first answer of modern psychiatry, unfortunately. I think much of that pain amelioration has to come from um, human relationships. And as you mentioned, many people who are suicidal perceive themselves and often are extremely isolated and lonely in the world. Mm-hmm. And some kind of relation, the, the tool I have, if I was somebody working with someone who's suicidal, is my relationship with them. That's what I have to offer people is a relationship that says, mm-hmm. you know, hang on, I'll try to help you hang on, but we're going to have a relationship to help you hang on. And modern psychiatry is not set up to do that. Most psychiatrists don't do very little therapy anymore. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's beautifully said. Um, I've often heard um, in the context of addiction that the opposite of addiction is connection. Exactly. And when I relate that to suicidality, I, I think it's the same way. Yes. I think that the path through one suicidality is connection. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But but connection takes time and connection takes the right kind of connection and connection uh, is is not nearly as efficient from yeah. a money monetary standpoint is prescribing a set of pills and you go on your way, you know? So that's, yeah, a, that's, and, a, that's a critique for me about modern psychiatry, but yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you and definitely have my own experience with that. Um, I think when <laughs> talking about connection, that's not the quick fix. You know, yes. if I, if I get a pill in two to four weeks, exactly. If, if not feeling better, I'm at least feeling numbed out from what I've been feeling, which uh-huh. is immense pain. Um, so yeah, it is certainly more time consuming, but possibly more rewarding and more of a permanent fix is the well, idea you ask of connection. What, what instills hope. And I think being connected and in, re- in relationship with the right kind of relationship with other people uh, instills hope. 
Absolutely. Something I'd like to go back to, not not exactly the, the direction I saw this conversation going, but it is certainly interesting and something that warrants a discussion, um, is you brought up the idea of physician-assisted suicide, which is, is traditionally or commonly viewed as much differently as someone making the decision solely to take their own life. That's right. And, and I'm curious what, what your take is on uh, assisted suicide and how you would view assisted suicide um, having a different impact than someone making the decision alone to take their own lives. Okay. That's a really good question. Um, first of all, let me, let me give you my definition of suicide. Suicide is when someone engages in behavior that leads to their death. That's kind of obvious. Um, but there's a second criteria, which is that it has to have been their intent when they engaged in that behavior to end their life. And so, for example, there's a lot of ambiguity about uh, substance abusers mm. um, um, who die of an overdose of opioids, you know, let's yeah. some kind of opiates. You know, is that a suicide? Is that the same as suicide? Is that a suicide or not? And I said, the only way you can answer that is you have to try to establish, see if you can try out whether they were trying to die at that moment or not. I, to, just to muddy the waters, I happen to believe there is such a thing as slow suicide, mm -hmm. which is people slowly coming to a point where they no, no longer want to live and would rather be dead than be alive. And many drug-dependent people gradually sort of go down that slippery slope to the point where the, the, the drug addiction has ruined much of the other things in their life that they care about and gave them pleasure and purpose and meaning in their life. And it feels like, you know, there's no reason for me to keep living and this living is hell for me. I would, I want to get out of hell. Mm. So um, suicide, assisted suicide, I think I've had people tell me who support assisted suicide, but are strongly against suicide allowing people to just kill themselves. See, there's been a debate about should should we be putting people in psychiatric hospitals against their will if they're suicidal? You know, mm. do we have the, the society have the right to do that? Do we have the right to stop someone from killing themselves? Um, and that's that's a tough question. But I think that the uh, the question about um, assisted suicide is a recognition by society that it is certain amounts of pain suicide can be a legitimate choice when people are in extreme amounts of pain mm. but society doesn't make the connection about is that uh, most people who on their own decide to do suicide and are not dying of a physical terminal illness um, are also in an extreme amount of pain and society doesn't recognize that people people don't give enough credence to the idea of psychological pain as yeah. being, you know, as as powerful a motivator as physical pain or pain of the body, mm. and um, I support physician-assisted suicide. I think people shouldn't just be willy-nilly able to to do it, you know, and say to doctor, "Hey, I had a rough day today. You know, yeah. send send me some opioids so that I can overdose and kill myself, or mm -hmm. you know, phenobarbital or something." On the other hand, I think that people who are relentlessly and unremittingly suffering from psychological pain 
should be allowed to consider uh, ending their life. And there are a lot of people that will just condemn what I just said, disagree with yeah. it or not like it, or they'll say you're undermining all our attempts to prevent suicide. Mm. Uh, and I, I don't think that's true, but, but I also think that there's a place for physician assisted suicide uh, in, in, in the modern world with some of the safeguards that have been built in about it, that you can't just do it. Willingly. And, you know, 15 yeah. year old girls whose boyfriend breaks up with them and they want to kill themselves. We shouldn't say, well, okay, you can go ahead and kill yourself. No, you have to be some limits about who's eligible for that. Yeah. I, I appreciate you going down that path with me. And I do tend to agree with you. I think one of the key differences when it comes to assisted suicide um, is there are safeguards built in place, as you mentioned, yes. um, in states and other countries where it is legal. Um, there is a process you have to go through. And often in that, in that process, you're pulling your family or your loved ones in and really shining a light on what it is, whether it's psychological pain or a physical health condition that's leading you to feeling like suicide is the only option. It makes you feel so badly. Yeah. So the you death know, would that's, be better than living. Yeah. And that's a stark difference, I think, than when someone I agree. on their own chooses to uh, complete suicide, which is um, I, I've thought about that in context of my dad, which is if if I had known the pain he must have been feeling, not just in the moment that he made the decision to take his own life, but in the 55 lead years up leading it, yeah. up to that. I, maybe I'd have a better understanding of why that seemed like such a good option for him. Right, right. From where um, he stood, why it looked like not only a good option, but the only option he had. Yes, that, yeah. that's a great distinction. Yeah. Um, but yeah, certainly a, a hot button issue and something that um, I am curious to hear people's stance on because there are a lot of uh, varying opinions on it. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. I, do, I, 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 I Let me give you an example. I'll do it briefly. Uh, uh, that raises these issues. I had a couple referred to me in which the, the man in the, in the couple uh, was talking about wanting to die, uh, wanting to be dead. And it was understandably upsetting his partner. And, and uh, I, they were referred to me, not because I'm an expert about working with suicidal patients, but, but they thought I could be helpful to them particularly to the wife who might someday have to be grieving, you know, the, the suicide of her partner. And um, I, when I first talked to them, I, I said to them, I'm going to do something unusual here. Maybe that some, some mental health professionals will not do. I'm not going to try to talk you out of wanting to die. Um, I'm going to treat this situation as a situation that's analogous to somebody who's, got excruciating cancer. Mm -hmm. um, and they say, I don't want any more treatment. No more surgeries. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm done with no more chemotherapy. I'm done with that. I want to be able to die. And they want assisted suicide. I said, nor am I going to support you in, in doing that. I'm going to try to help the two of you talk about that issue in the way that I would help a couple in which one of the partners said, I don't want any more treatment. I want to be allowed to die. And the other partner was saying, I'm not ready to have you go. Mm -hmm. I'm not ready to let you go. I can't understand why you would won't keep fighting, you know, for my sake and see if I can foster just some empathic discussion between the two of you uh, about that. I didn't see them very long and I don't know what happened. 
Um, but he told me that he had been thinking about suicide since he was nine years of age. Wow. Literally all his life suicide had been on, on his mind. And I, I can't explain why that I know that's not unheard of why some people have that, but he had been contemplating suicide for most of his life. And I saw them for a while, tried to foster that discussion. And then they decided to stop it. I, I don't know whether he actually ended his life or, or not. I want to hope that the conversation helped both of them get ready for that eventuality, if that's what happened, if that's the way, of course, it took. Uh, and mm -hmm. maybe it helped him think about it differently to hear his partner talk about how devastating it would be and how much she felt she needed him. So I, I don't mm -hmm. know if that influenced things or not. But Yeah. Uh, in, in your example um, of this couple, it sounds like the husband was actively talking about wanting to end his life. And yes, that, that made me think about something and I'm helping you could hope me I'm hoping you could help me pick this myth apart. I think there are a lot of um, untrue things that are said about suicide. Yes. And one of those things that I've heard from the time I was really young, um, dealing with kids, you know, kids my age in school who were talking about suicide, something we hear is that if someone's talking about suicide, if they're talking about wanting to end their life, they're not going to do it. It's and that complete, is primarily for attention. Complete bullshit. Yeah. I mean, it, it may serve that purpose. It may be a signal. I'm having a hard time. I'm in trouble. Pay attention to me. Mm -hmm. I'm prepared to accept that. But that implies what you're describing is a view that just says it's just manipulation. They're, they're just being manipulative. Yeah. And you know, they're just crying wolf, if you will. And mm -hmm. I think the, the evidence is overwhelming that that's just complete bunk. Yeah. Not true. Someone talks about wanting to be dead. You have to take it seriously. And, and just because they don't follow through and attempt suicide doesn't mean it, they weren't seriously contemplating it. Or, well, I've, 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 I've seen uh, uh, known of situations where a, you know, an adolescent girl, you know, 15, 16, 17 years old, makes a suicide attempt, overdoses on some pills, and she gets taken to the emergency room. And the ER doc says, she wasn't serious about this, you know, 15, you know, the, the Tylenol she took uh, uh, couldn't kill her. So that's not a serious attempt and we don't have to take it seriously. And mm. I'm like, BS, you know, that's simply not true um, because that girl may, if she's really wanting to die and the things that are making her want to die continue, she'll, she'll discover sooner or later that, well, taking 15 Tylenol isn't going to kill you, but taking a hundred will. You know, yeah. um, you can kill yourself with Tylenol, literally, or yeah. you can kill yourself, uh, you know, a million other ways. And to not take it seriously is a, is a huge mistake. I, I definitely agree. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for uh, that answer there. I do want to shift gears a little bit. Um, yep. One, one of the other curiosities or questions I'm looking to answer with this podcast is around the statistics, um, which are that men are four times more likely to complete suicide than women, um, generally speaking. And yep. men of a certain age range are even more likely um, mm -hmm. for being those who actually follow through with taking their own lives. Yep. I'm curious what your thoughts are on some of the contributing factors to that um, and any either any personal experience that you've had from a clinical standpoint or just any uh, insight that you may have to offer on why that is. Yeah, that's a good question. Um... Well, first, my first thought about that when people ask me that is that, well, think about it. 
aren't aren't men aren't males not only in homo sapiens but in in mammalian species aren't males more aggressive and violent about everything mm. in their life than females are in general so mm. of course there are females who are more violent than some men but as a rule men are more aggressive and violent and more likely to engage in violent behavior more likely to be angry more likely to engage in violent behavior so i think some of that is is biological difference between the the sexes and the the genders maybe really i don't know enough about hormonal stuff and behavior but maybe related to higher levels of testosterone and and other things like that mm. um violence is more acceptable to men violence is is um there are many cultures in, in cultures in which violence is most in most cultures violence is is regulated you can't just go willy-nilly around you know beating up people or killing them or whatever but violence from males towards other males is often acceptable behavior we call that war mm -hmm. we call it the military in which men are taught not to be violent towards other uh other males and it's it's esteemed we make them national heroes you know and give them medals mm -hmm. of honor when they're violent towards other generally other other males um so that it's it's a more it's seen as a more respectable way to die I, and that even applies to perhaps the suicide in japan in um traditional samurai culture uh if you were defeated in battle you were gravely dishonored by being defeated it was shameful it's a mm. very traditional Japanese culture, a very shame-based culture. And you you had shamed yourself and your family if you were a samurai and you were defeated in battle. But there was a way in which you could restore your honor. And the way you could restore your honor was to kill yourself. Oh, wow. And so, so suicide in that sense was not stigmatized or condemned. It was almost expected as, mm. as a way of erasing the dishonoring uh, uh, effect of having lost in battle. So all I'm saying is that suicidal behavior and violent behavior in general has less stigma associated with it for males than for females. I think that's part of it. And they may also may also be biologically wired to be more violent. They may, may see aggression as a way of dealing with problems more than females do. Again, recognize there are females who can be as violent as males yeah. or can have the yeah. same attitude or, or attitudes. It's a matter of degree on a continuum rather than the women are this way and men are this way. Sure. Um, and, and pulling on that a little bit, I think it, it, it is also more likely that men are uh, to use violent means for well, exactly. suicide. Just what I was going to say. They we know we, it's well established. They use more more likely to use firearms and and more violent means of death, in which you're more likely to actually kill yourself instead of just injure yourself. Unfortunately, that's changing. Women use firearms more often than they used to in the United mm -hmm. States, at least, to uh, to end their life. Why is it? If you're talking about the demographics of it, my understanding is that the you know used to be oh, people like my great uncle, who was 87 years old. Uh, most of his friends had died. His wife had died six months earlier. Um, he had just been diagnosed with cancer and he ended his life. And I think he died a death that was, I at least could understand 
um, and probably wasn't nearly as socially stigmatized as if he'd been much uh, younger or his wife was still alive or whatever. People could identify with it and say, well, I can understand that. You know why I I can imagine being in that situation myself where I might do it. Um, I also think females avail themselves of things that we know can help people feel a little relieve some of the pain and feel a little less lonely and a little better. What which is talking with other people about what they're going through. Mm. Men try to I've made a verb out of it. Men typically when they are in pain, emotional pain, try to John Wayne it. Mm. Did you ever see John Wayne ask for help or talk about his feelings about about what it was like when he'd been through a tough situation or whether it was combat or whether it was, you know, losing somebody important to him? No, real men don't do that. Mm. And those are those are good ways of helping to relieve some of the uh, uh, the pain and, and and restore some sense of hope. And women are more allowed to by by society and and supported for seeking that kind of help yeah that's very you know, well women said. Are much more likely to go to therapy than than men are you know that's changing but over time yeah yep well first first i love that and i'm going to use that john wayne it um i definitely see in my own life when i try to john wayne it sometimes um when you were talking about the way it used to be at least which was, and thank you for sharing that with me, by the way, about your great uncle, that was the demographic that was primarily affected for a long yeah. time. And it seems right. like that's even shifting to yeah. my dad. Uh, my dad was 54, now. 54 yeah. going on 55 when, yeah. when he took his life. And you don't have to look very far to see a lot of um, high profile instances of that happening between Anthony Bourdain and Robin Williams and Chris Cornell, Chester Bennington. I mean, the list goes on yep. and on yep. of, of men who are between the ages of 45 and 60 who yeah, middle take their own lives. Yeah. Middle-aged Caucasian men. Yes. Yeah, primarily middle-aged ca- uh, Caucasian men. And I'm wondering what what that shift may be about and if there's, there's any uh, perspective you have to share there. I know it's a tough question. If we knew, yeah, then no, we'd, we'd I, have an answer. answer is I, I don't think I know. Yeah, I don't think I, I don't know if anybody knows what why that's that's happening. I mean, we know that divorce has increased a lot, and men do marriage is better for men than for women. Mm. You know, psychologically, women, as I said, are more socially connected and typically have more friendships and close relationships, even if it's not their marital partner. Oftentimes, for men, the only important person in their life is their partner, their spouse. And if they lose that, and by the time you're in your 40s and 50s, there's more chance that you're, either your wife will have left you or will be ill with a, a terminal illness. Mm-hmm. So there may be more isolated males in that age group than older, though I don't know why there would be more middle-aged men who are isolated than elderly men who are isolated. So I really don't have an answer to that question. Yeah, it's a bit of a bit of a brain buster. Um, and I do want to shift gears again. Um, yeah. I think making our way to talking about um, the book that I found very helpful that you've written, which is after okay. suicide loss. And uh, I think I'd like to lead in with with this question, kind of taking us to uh, ground zero, thinking of an individual who has just recently lost a loved one to suicide. I'm wondering what what advice you would share with them in terms of what are important first and next steps in terms of finding support for their loss. Well, um, I guess the, the first kinds of things that I would recommend to people would be one, 
is recognize that this is an injury in the same way. If you, if you were in a car accident and had your leg broken, most people wouldn't fight going to the hospital. They would, and the pain would make them want to go to the hospital and say, go to the hospital and get some treatment for it, get that bone set, but also get some medication that helps reduce the, the pain, you know? And, and so you have to take care of yourself. And even when you start to, you know, the leg starts to heal or get set and the bone starts to grow back, you're going to have to be careful in your walking. So you have been injured with the equivalent of having your, your leg broken or your back broken or something like that. Mm. You have to, you have to pay special attention to taking care of yourself and ask yourself, what do I need? What will help me feel better? Um, how can I learn about what this experience is about? What do other people say I need to do to take care of myself, et cetera? What's the doctor recommend, et cetera? So that's one thing is recognize that you've been injured, cut yourself some slack about that and, and focus on doing active, healthy self-care. Okay. Mm -hmm. Self-care doesn't mean getting drunk every night, yep. you know, um, which is the way that some people do self-care is to try to numb it out. So that's the first thing. The second thing would be don't try to John Wayne it. Don't try to do this all by yourself. There are resources. Sometimes they're hard to find, but uh, the the reading list that I sent to you that I hope you'll post on your uh, website also has uh, a list of some resources. And for example, there's something called the Alliance of Hope. Are you familiar with that? I'm not. Okay. The Alliance of Hope is an online resource started by a survivor, a woman who lost her stepson to suicide. Um, and there's now, I don't know, there's probably 40 or 50,000 people that at one time or another have used it. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful resource. You can go online anytime, 24 seven day or night and talk to somebody else. Um, you can also, um, you, you can post, you can go online and just read what other people are saying about their experience. Um, you can also go online and post when you're ready to do that, and people will respond to you. The sites are not controlled, but they're monitored. So hmm. people get on and start saying very unhelpful or stupid stuff. You know, the, the monitors will cut it off. Yeah, um, It's a tremendous resource. Tremendous use of the Internet is a way for people to connect, particularly people who can't find other sources of support in their community. Find yourself sources of support from other people who either get it, and that often means other people who've lived the same journey or a similar journey, or people who may not get it, but they are just exceptionally good at being empathic, trying to understand what it feels like for you and and want to know more about what it feels like for you. Yeah. Um, certainly there are excellent resources to check into. Uh, AFSP is one, there are other ones that are both local chapters of AFSP that you can contact as well as uh, more other more national organizations. Um, one of the, I'll just put in a little plug for something I have been doing for several years, a training for mental health professionals um, around working with suicide loss survivors. One of the things that has come out of that is that we've created an online searchable database of people who are licensed mental health professionals who have taken that training. That's so incredible. If you, go, if you go to the AFSP website uh, uh, and you do a search under uh, suicide bereavement trained clinicians, 
little hard to remember that, but just search under clinicians or trained clinicians, bereavement trained clinicians. It'll get you to that database and then you can look for somebody, try to find somebody in your area. There are still areas, unfortunately, that there really is a nobody uh, in it, but it, it's a good place to start if you're looking for a clinician who cares enough about this subject, uh, who may be a survivor themselves or may not be, but but cares enough about this to want to take a, a day-long training. Um, and so start looking for resources like that and ask around, recognize that you're, you're, you're general practitioner or your, you know, your clergy person may or may not know of resources, but keep asking. Um, and, and you ask the national organizations like AFSP, where can I find a clinician in somewhere in my area? The other thing is by virtue of the internet, you don't have to find somebody who's in your area necessarily anymore. Mm. You may be able to find a clinician on that list who does virtual sessions and they'll do them with you if you live on the other side of the country you know, from them. Um, so there, that opens up a whole much bigger realm of people who might be able to be supportive to you. So the Alliance of Hope, things like that are all great resources to do. So don't try to do this alone. Do it with help from other people. Many Find a way to talk to other survivors about it and also educate yourself. Read, read about suicide bereavement and that, and you'll recognize yourself and what people are writing about that. What else? Um, you're going to have to find ways to manage other people's responses to you. Mm -hmm. Some people's responses will be wonderful, will be kind and supportive and empathic. Other people's will be all those things, but more because they've lived it or they've lived, known somebody or they've lived it themselves. And then you're going to find people who just are clueless. Yeah. And they'll say, well, oh, that's terrible. That you know your 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 father died by suicide. You know my cat died five weeks ago. You know, uh, yeah. I I know just what you're what you're feeling or what you're talking mm -hmm. about, and you're gonna feel like, no, you don't. I'm sorry, no, you don't. So you got to find people who it feels like get it and want to encourage you to to share it. Um, take good physical care of yourself. We know that exercise. Um, is a natural antidepressant. I know the hardest thing in the world when you're grieving is to get your get your butt out and go to the Y or go mm -hmm. for a walk or whatever. But exercise helps. Um, avoid things that temporarily numb your pain, like alcohol or other drugs or or whatever. Um, you know, overeating, etc. That produce a little bit of a dopamine response, but don't really help you in the long run and use healthy ways of getting support for yourself. The last thing is recognize that you can absorb this. I, I can say with authority, because I've known so many survivors, this is something that people can feel implies that you get it over with and you go on down the road. Um, what, what, people do instead is they learn to carry it in a way that's not so painful that I, I don't, I just used this yesterday. So I don't remember if I used it with you or not. Um, did I give you the, the boulder metaphor? No, no, you haven't. Okay. okay. I had somebody in a support group once say to me, Dr. Jordan, people think when you're, when you're grieving, this was a support group for suicide loss survivors. When you're grieving, it's like having this heavy boulder put on your shoulders and at some point, you just take that boulder and put it down. You go on down the road. 
I call it the flu model of grieving. People think when you're grieving, it's an unpleasant temporary experience that you have. You get over it and you're all done with it. You just go on with your life. Mm. Now what happens? This loss is, if it's somebody important to you in your life and you were blindsided by the suicide, this loss is transformational. Mm. It changes people and changes their themselves and how they look at life. Um, and that kind of change is never easy to absorb or to integrate into who you are. But what he said to me was, he said, taking the boulder and putting it down by the road and just going on down the road is not what's happened to me. What's happening to me is my back is getting stronger. Mm -hmm. That's a perfect metaphor about what healing looks like is that I still feel the pain. I still visit it from time to time, but I, it doesn't feel so heavy because I can carry it better. Now, yeah. that's what you should aim for and maintain hope that you can do that, even if in the beginning it may feel impossible. It's a leap of faith in the beginning to to work on trying to absorb the blow and, and trust that you will you will be able to feel better again someday. Yeah, I, I love the metaphor about the boulder, and it, it makes me think of how it's played out in my own experience, mm -hmm. which maybe my back has gotten stronger. I'm sure it has. Um, another but thing that's happened you, for me, though. Look at sure. what you're doing. You know, I, I don't think I've gotten there carrying the boulder by myself, though. Um, I Absolutely. think that's what's helped me is um, having having help carrying that boulder is Absolutely. what has really helped me. Absolutely. Whether it's help from other people or from self care right. or from healthy grieving, I think there are a lot of things that make that boulder a little bit lighter. Absolutely, you're not trying to and you're not trying to John Wayne it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Even though, did you have the impulse to do that? I think I did that for about did you first two years. For a while? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. For the first two years, I found a lot of temporary mechanisms for numbing my grief. Yep. Um, I dealt with it yep. largely alone. Yeah. Um, and that did not lead me to a place that, that I hope to stay it. for very long. Not at all. That's why I said I, you got to recognize that you've been injured and you need you need to take care of yourself and you need to let other people take care of you. Help yeah. You, you talked about the flu model of grief. I think I approached it with the NASCAR model of grief. I thought I could outrun it. I thought I could get a couple miles ahead you of it. Step on the gas, huh? Yeah. And <laughs> very good. There comes a time where that car spins out and that grief is right there on your tail. That's, that's a metaphor only a guy could have come up with. <laughs> I don't like NASCAR for the record, but um, I'm noticing a theme here, which is whether it's dealing with your own suicidal ideation or dealing with losing a loved one to suicide or dealing with substance abuse. It seems like the common theme in terms of a mechanism for healing is connection. Um, and that's something that's been very helpful for me. You've talked about support groups. Um, the AFSP has a survivors of suicide loss support group that I've yes, gotten involved direct, with. A directory, um, yep. They have uh, what they call out of the darkness walks, yes. which are fundraising events that they do all over the United States where you get yep. directly connected to other survivors of suicide exactly. loss. Exactly. They have the healing conversations program yes. where you get connected one-on-one -on -one with another survivor yes. who has yes. endured a similar loss to yourself. Yes. Um, so yeah, there are and they, a lot they of now things. have the, the, the searchable database of people that have taken the training that I do so if you're looking for a therapist to connect with so let, let me i would add one c to your thing the connection is the the core to healing i completely agree with that i would say compassionate connecting mm -hmm. and you need to give yourself permission to protect yourself from even avoid people who don't get it and are either clunky inadvertently or just downright cruel you know about yeah. it, uh, angry about it you know 
I've I've know I've heard stories from people who say, you know, my my sister, my husband killed himself. My sister got got furious with my husband after he did that, and I can't be around her because she's so angry with him now. She hates him so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I I sometimes I'm angry with him, but I don't want to hear that I loved him, and she's always bad mouthing him, you know. And so you need compassionate, empathic connection. Yeah, that's that's a really important distinction, and I, and I love how in uh, your your previous response and talking about the support for after losing a loved one, you touched on a lot of things that make uh, after suicide loss your book uh, one of one of my personal favorite books in terms of uh, bereavement around suicide loss. I actually have it right here, and and one of my favorite things about it. Thank you. One of my favorite things about it is how tactical it is. Um, I view this book as a guidebook. Um, It takes me step by step from I just lost my loved one to suicide all the way through. I'm a few years down the road. Um, And it takes me step by step in different things I can do to help me um, in that stage or in that step of grieving. Um, You talk about the immediate reactions of the body, mind and emotions, which for me were all spot on for things that I went through. You talk about um, specific challenges, including possibly being the one finding your loved one, yep. um, the police investigation, which I, I love that you touched on that because for me, that is often one of the things that I flash back to yep. is the involvement of police and the ambulance. And one of the most all, traumatizing all the aspects of it. Yep. Absolutely. And, yep. and you talk about the funeral, which was a, another thing that I think we went through on autopilot, but now looking back, realizing how traumatizing just that entire process was. Yes. And, and then finally, you you talk about what you mentioned in your previous response, self-care of the body, mind, and spirit. Yes. And, I'm, and I'm curious if you can, uh, which I think you've touched on a little bit already, and I'm wondering if you have anything else to add in terms of what are some of those uh, specific ways you can care for your body, mind, and spirit. Okay, um, I'll, I'll I'll try to name some things. I also want to. I appreciate you're putting in a plug for the book. Um, people may be saying, "Well, how how can I find that book or or get it?" Um, I've sent to you a reading list uh, and reading resource list. I call it because it has resources as well as suggested readings. That book is listed on there it's called after suicide loss coping with your grief mm-hmm. co colleague uh, uh, bob bauer and i co-wrote that book and it we self-published the book so that so that you can't just walk in any bookstore or anywhere and get it if you go to you can find it on amazon um and you can um uh you can buy it directly from bob if you will he's hand bless his heart he's handled all the people that want to buy the book and he mm-hmm. you know takes care of all the fulfillment stuff about that. There's instructions on that reading list about how to, how to purchase the book if you're interested in it. I would also suggest if I can and just this, I don't know if you can see it. Uh, it basically is titled lessons lost. It's an article that I wrote a few years ago, uh, published in, I think 2016. Nope. 2020. Uh, more recently than that, lessons learned. Lessons learned. Four years of clinical work with suicide loss survivors. That's a distillation of what I feel I've learned mm. over forty years of doing clinical work with survivors. 
that article, it's also published in a journal that is what's called an open access journal, uh, Frontiers in Psychology, which means that unlike most journal articles where you have to subscribe to the journal to be able to read the article, or you have to pay money online for it, or you have to go to a library and get that as the journal, you can get this article and I'm free to distribute it to people. And I've sent you a copy of the article and you can put it on your uh, website. Uh, Fantastic. So people can can download that article and read it. So a lot of what I would say in answer to your question about what are specific things that people can do, um, I talk about in this article, as well as a way of, I talk about basically what I call the tasks of integrating the loss. What are the what what are the things people need to work on in terms of healing? And that includes both some specific concrete suggestions, but um, uh, it, it gives you an idea of the of the kind of things that you need to be working on. And um, I, it's hard for me to say do this or do that or don't do this or don't do that in general because it's idiosyncratic. Mm. what's helpful for one person is not necessarily going to be helpful for another. And so if I was seeing somebody and they say, well, tell me what to do now, I can usually suggest a couple things, but it's more like I'll say, well, this is something you and I can work out together. It's going to be trial and error. Yes. Figuring out what's going to help you specifically to feel better and to be able to carry this loss, to carry that boulder, if you will on your back and so making specific recommendations for things for people to try um uh is difficult to do because i don't know universal things that people can do except some general things like that i've already mentioned educate yourself yeah not only about suicide and what contributes to suicide but grief after suicide and educate yourself about trauma because most people have some degree of trauma symptoms after after a suicide Trauma and grief, are, they often are, occur together after certain kinds of losses like suicide. But from a mental health perspective, trauma and grief are not the same thing. Mm. Grief is about separation. what's called separation distress. The pain uh, that goes with being separated from somebody to whom we are attached and bonded. Trauma is about when something massively threatening has happened to us, like somebody mugs you on the street and holds a knife to your neck, you know, that's terrifying. And mm-hmm. then people develop trauma. They keep reliving the experience. Suicide often combines elements of that because massively threatening doesn't have to mean physically massively threatening to our well-being. It can be massively threatening to our psychological well-being and finding your son hanging by a noose in the basement of the house or just having your father die to take your situation can be really psychologically disturbing and dis- disorienting and threatening to your sense of well-being in the world. I don't know what your relationship with your dad was like. but um, And so people develop trauma symptoms as well as grief symptoms. Grief symptoms are basically about yearning mm-hmm. uh, for, to have the person back and to, to undo the death, to have it not be so. Um the threat aspects of it are have to do with, with the ways in which I don't feel safe in the world anymore. So after, after you lose someone to suicide, you may not feel safe in allowing yourself to love someone else or to trust someone else, because what if, what if someone, what if my mom kills herself now, you know, or what Mm -hmm. if my partner in life gets suicidal or something, you you become 
afraid of the trauma happening again, uh, of a reoccurrence of it. And that tends to dominate people's lives. Um, so educate yourself about all those things, mostly so you can say, oh, I guess I'm not crazy. I'm not losing my mind. This is what happens to people afterwards. Secondly, is seek supportive relationships, the kind that we we're talking about, where pe where people are empathic and either get it or they're, they're good at being able to have you teach them about what this is like uh, for them. And protect yourself from people who don't get it and make you mm -hmm. feel worse. Mm. Anybody that makes you feel worse, you should give yourself permission to say, I don't want to be around them any more than I have to. You know, if it's your boss at work, maybe you have to be around them some. But but as much as you can, you want to isolate yourself or prepare yourself. I sometimes have done guided visualizations with people that have, you know, they had a bad family relative, you know, a mother-in-law or a, a mother or a, a boss or somebody who they had to deal with that made them feel worse. And I would do a guided visualization with them about putting on a suit of armor before they mm. meet with them and interact with them and imagine that armor being on you and what they say just sort of hits you and then bounces off you, you know, or a waterproof suit and somebody's, you know, squirting a hose on you for a little bit and you doesn't bother me, you know, mm -hmm. get to my skin, you know? Um, so prepare yourself to deal with people who don't get it as well as try to be seek to be with people who do get it. Often that's other survivors, but there's, not necessarily have to be other survivors. Avail your source, yourself of resources that are specifically for survivors, such as things like the Alliance of Hope. Mm. The Alliance of Hope costs nothing. It's available 24 seven. Um, check that out, you know, and there may be other local resources for you in your community that you can make uh, use of. Um, if you start to feel suicidal yourself, and by the way, that's not uncommon, yeah. Suicide loss survivors to have some suicidal ideation themselves. And those feelings seem like they're getting stronger or you feel like you're getting, it's one thing to have thoughts about something. It's another thing to get closer to the edge of those thoughts in terms of taking action. Mm. If you find yourself really wanting to take action on them um, or they're too painful, too unremitting and painful, get some professional help. And by professional, I'm talking about a mental health clinician who gets this? Yeah. Don't assume that all mental health professionals know how to do this, you know, because they don't and they don't get training in it. Uh, so get, be, be willing to meet with more than one mental health professionals, shop for somebody, ask them questions. Hey, how much have you worked with survivors? Are you a survivor yourself? Do you have any way that you work with survivors? You know, uh, what do you think? after I've told you some of my story, what do you think I'm going to need to work on? You know, see if they seem like they know what they're doing. If they yeah. know the territory. And if you feel safe with them, if you like them and, and feel safe and basically uh, they're more or less understanding what it, what you're feeling, what you're going through. Yes. That's, that's all very helpful. And that's something I'm a firm believer um, of as well, which is, um, being an advocate for your own mental health. I, I think often exactly. we want to rely on the professionals and assume they're going to completely take the wheel and heal this for us. But in reality, right. just passively, the doctor is going to give you a treatment of something. Right. Fiction. Right. At the end of the day, it's, it's up to me to find the right person who's exactly. going to be able to help me through what I'm going through. Um, Kathy Shear, who's a psychiatrist at Columbia university, who's 
really her whole career has been focused on working with bereavement, not specifically suicide bereavement, but bereavement has a beautiful analogy. She says that what we're doing when we work with people who are bereaved is we're like Sherpas. We we know how different ways to get up the mountain. Um, and we the Sherpa also reads you well in terms of what your stamina is, what how much climbing you're able to do in a day, that kind of thing. And they walk with you up the mountain and try to pick the path that's helpful for you and support you while you're going up. And so you have, have to have somebody who you trust and some idea of what the what the pathway is up up, up the mountain to be a guide for you. Um, and don't be afraid to search for that or to, to ask for that. Yeah, thank, thank you for sharing that. Um, this has been incredibly helpful for me, and I know others are going to find it helpful as well. Um, I really appreciate everything that you've shared with us today and really wanted to thank you for all the work that you've done and continue to do around suicide bereavement. Um, it's something that is incredibly important and, in my opinion, underserved. Um, and just really appreciate from the bottom of my heart everything that you've done. Um, well, thank you so much for asking me to do this, Rob. It's It's been... I don't want to say it's been a pleasure, but it's it's I, I'm honored uh, when I get a chance to do something that I think um, will be of help to people who are often in tremendous amounts of pain. That that makes me feel good about doing something worthwhile in, in my own life. So I appreciate very much what you're saying, and I'm, I'm glad to have been able to do this. Thank you, Dr. Jordan. And there, there is one question I'd like to leave you with that feels um, feels like a good a good place to end. Um, we've talked about it a little bit, um, but I'm curious to see if you have any other thoughts in terms of the evolution of grief over time. Um, some, I think there's this misconception about the stages of grief, if you will. And it's obviously not something that's linear. And the further I get from losing my dad, uh, the more and more new experiences I seem to have. And I'm curious yeah. if in your experience, Good. you could share about the, Good. the Good. evolution of grief. Good. No, you're exactly, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, no, the, first of all, let me just tell you that Kubler-Ross, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who invented the, the five stages of grieving, um, was a pioneer she was a revolutionary because nobody in the medical profession was talking about grief and bereavement or even recognize essentially nobody uh, or recognizing it as a deep human problem that, that other someone else can be helpful to someone who's grieving mm. uh, about. Um, she never meant for her, her, her stages. First of all, she wrote, Technically speaking, the five stages were about the stages of psychological stages that people go through when they are facing their own mortality. That's right. Their own death, not when they're grieving the loss of someone else to uh, to death. But they work well in that situation also. But rather than seeing grieving as a process of stages that you, you go through stage one, you know, denial, and then you go through uh, anger, and then you go through bargaining, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And once you finish with a stage, you don't go back and visit it. I think it's much more useful to think about grieving as a circular process. Mm -hmm. In fact, the analogy that I have come to use is that it's like climbing a, a spiral staircase. You keep looking back at the same thing when you climb a spiral staircase. But as you climb up that staircase, you, you also begin to see it from a different perspective. From a little further away and a little broader 
um, perspective. And so you can expect that you're going to come back around to your grief over and over again, but know that you can be making progress up that spiral staircase, even uh, even when it it feels like I'm 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 just going back. I'm just spinning my wheels, going round and round. No, you're actually going like this. Mm-hmm. And if you have some faith and and hope in that, I think you'll find that that better explains what mo- the pathway is for most people. And that includes just what you said, which is that people can continue to discover uh, new aspects of their grief. I remember when uh, my father died, uh, which was the major loss in my life uh, when I was in my mid twenties uh, and I was in graduate school and that kind of thing. Um, and I remember uh, having a little kind of awakening experience when my, I w- went to my daughter's graduation from um, both high school and then four years later from college. And I thought, Wow, you know, I had this sense that somebody's missing. And then I thought, of course, your dad's missing; mm-hmm. he's not here. You know, and I, I grieved again a little bit that my dad wasn't here to watch his firstborn grandchild, for me at least, uh, graduate from high school and from college, and then my, likewise with my my son. And it was like, oh, I'm going to visit my grief for the rest of my life. I'm going to discover new things about it. It never occurred to me when my father died, oh, you're going to miss him when your daughter graduates from high school, you know, X number of years from now. I didn't discover that until I got to that point in my life. And in that sense, grief evolves. You begin to see the depth and the breadth of what it means to not have this person in your life. The central question in grieving is the question, what have I lost? And what does it mean to not have my dad or whoever it is in your life now? And you discover that over time as you go through your life without this person. That means you revisit that grief, but each visit makes you a little more familiar with it, makes it a little more bearable. Yes, time helps, but time by itself doesn't heal. It's time and doing the psychological work of learning Mm -hmm. to carry that boulder is what helps it to heal. You do need time to do that. It's a slow process, but you you can't just wait. You can't either step on the gas and outrun it, to use your metaphor, or you can't just hunker down in the storm shelter, the bottom of your psychological home and wait for the tornado to pass over and then come back out. Yeah. You got to, you got to, you're going to visit it. It's going to happen again, but accept that as normal um, and have faith that you can absorb the, the blow and, learn to carry it. Yeah, very, very well said. And thank you for sharing that. Um, Dr. Jordan, again, really appreciate you joining me today. Uh, I found this to be incredibly helpful. I will include links to a lot of the things we've discussed today in terms of readings and resources in the show notes. Um, And Dr. Jordan, I look forward to speaking with you again soon.